try to imagine a pot, a clay pot. What makes this pot a pot? What gives it its function, its use? Is it the clay? Or is it the empty space created between the clay walls? Now the Japanese, they call this negative space Ma. And today we'll be talking about object-oriented programming and it will probably be another rant with Brent. Now I've been programming for about eight years now and I should say object-oriented programming. And three of those eight years I spent in college. And in college I learned quite a lot of theory about what OO actually is. Now lately I noticed myself asking a question over and over again, what is OO? Is what I learned at school and what I've been doing these past five years actually object-oriented? I've recently watched a talk given in 1997 by a guy called Alan Kay. If you don't know who that is, it's basically the inventor of the term OOP and he himself calls it OOP, at least he did back then. It's an amazing and intriguing talk in which he says, and I quote, I made up the term object-oriented and I can tell you I did not have C++ in mind, end quote. Now, obviously, I was kind of baffled by this. C++ is basically the OO version of C, and both can safely be called the prototype for many modern-day languages. You can imagine this made me think, what is object-oriented? What was the original idea, and was it better than what we do today, or just different? So, I started researching the topic, the original plan with OOP. What surprised me was that Alan and his team, when inventing object-oriented programming, also invented a new language. The goal of this language was to teach children about programming and OOP. So it's safe to say that this language, it's called Smalltalk, is a great learning opportunity about the original vision of Alan and his team. Now the language itself was very simple, it had just a few keywords, but it was a so-called pure object-oriented language. And afterwards, it turned out that the language was actually very powerful despite or thanks to its simplicity. And lots of real and complex programs were written in it. One of the reasons for its popularity is that it's not just a simple language, but the OO concepts in it turned out to be very powerful and flexible. And what struck me most is that Smalltalk doesn't look like any OO language that we know today. Someone asked Alan about his definition of OOP back in 2003, and he gave three key concepts. First of all, messaging between objects. Second, local retention, protection and hiding 
of state, and third, extreme late binding. Now to further understand what he meant with this, we need to know a little more background information. See, Alan thinks of an object as an independent system, a mini computer, if you want to call it like that. And each system manages its own state. It protects it from the outside. Now, the only way to communicate between objects is by sending messages between them. Now, for the late binding, it means that the programmer doesn't need to know exactly what's in a variable at the time of writing code. And an example that's commonly known to the OO programmer is polymorphism, where we can program to an interface and don't have to worry about the concrete implementation we're working with. Now, this gives us independent systems which can communicate with each other. And you don't even need to know what system exactly you're dealing with when writing the program. So what about the clay pot and the Japanese word ma? You can think of objects in your program as the clay and the program as the pot as a whole. It's the space between the clay, between the objects that gives the program its real use. The ma of oop are the processes using the objects. And following the vision of Smalltalk, you could say that these processes are objects themselves. Because in Smalltalk, everything is an object. In our modern day languages, we think of objects as classes. Now in Smalltalk, there's even more. Take for example, an if statement. It doesn't exist in Smalltalk. Instead, there's an object representing a true value and an object representing a false value. And both have two methods, if true and if false. Say you'd store the value of a Boolean expression into a variable, you could simply send a message if true, do this, or if false, do that. Now, in case of the true class, only if true will execute the code, vice versa for the false class. So where does all of this leave us? And to be honest, I'm still wrestling with it because I believe the mindset of objects as systems used by processes is a great one, though I struggle to find a way to implement it in my day-to-day -day programmer life. And that's mainly because of the languages and frameworks I use. Now, for the record, I don't think these languages and frameworks are all bad, but they are different. I was actually happily surprised to notice that I moved towards an object and processes based system in a project I've been working on without even knowing it or doing it consciously. It's not completely what Alan meant with OOP, but I noticed a subconscious desire in my programmer brain to try and improve the object-oriented code I'm writing. So my challenge or question for you today is to stop and think and take a moment to wonder how you're writing code today and why that is. Think about the things you've learned at school or at your workplace and think about alternative ways which might be beneficial for you maybe in the same language or framework and with that being said i wish you the best of luck and please please share your experiences and opinions on this topic with me you can find my contact information on my website that's stitcher.io and I also want to ask you if you're listening to this podcast and enjoy it, please go give it a rating on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher Radio. It helps me out a lot. 
Thank you and see you next time.